morning. Uh, if you serve an able God, can you just give him praise just for a moment? You believe that he's able to do exceedingly, abundantly above all you could ever ask or think. Just for a second, give God praise. Hallelujah. It's a good God. Um, well, good morning. I'm, I'm Sorry, good morning. Uh, you can take your seats uh, here just for a moment. Some of y'all are confused because um, you don't see a good-looking white man standing in front of you on the stage to preach God's word. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, he'll be back, but you stuck with me this morning. But God is able. <laughs> uh, I'm Evan Marbury. Um, bring your greetings from Christ Central Church uh, in Durham, North Carolina, where I serve as one of the pastors there. Uh, been serving there for a couple years. I've known uh, Pastor Ben uh, for some years now. We connected through the New City Network uh, some time ago and I have continued to connect here and there. Uh, and it just worked out for me to be here, and I'm really thankful for him, thankful uh, for his lovely wife, Nikki, uh, to be able to preach God's word. And uh, just an added bonus of me being here, an added blessing that I get to visit uh, with my oldest and dearest friends, the, the Thigpen family, uh, Mike and Lacey. Uh, love the we can, give, we can give God praise for aren't they? Aren't they a blessing to this church? Aren't they a blessing? They used to say most days. I know that struggle. I know that. Uh, take the good with the bad. All right. Um, but uh, just really thankful and excited to be here. When, when Lacey and I get together, we laugh a lot, and we're really silly. Uh, so it makes it hard to be serious about preaching God's word, because I got to switch. Uh, Y'all not ready for my silliness yet, because y'all don't know me like that. But uh, really thankful to have some joy in the word of God. Uh, really thankful uh, to be uh, fellowshipping with you this morning. Pastor Ben asked me to uh, come preach uh, sometime in the spring, maybe, maybe about April, um, and was so honored for the gracious invitation. And I have been praying for you all ever since. Uh, you have been in my prayers. I did not know your faces, uh, but I have known this church, um, and I trust that the same God that I serve in Durham, North Carolina, is the same God here. Uh, and he is strong and mighty, mighty in power. And so I trust that the Lord is going to work in this place this morning, even as we're fellowshipping over the word uh, for the first time together in this moment. So really thankful uh, for, for this, this time here. I got mixed emotions. I'm just going to say this. I hope I'm safe here, but I got mixed emotions. I came down. My four-year-old daughter sang her first solo uh, today, and she was recording. She was all nervous, and the thick pins uh, cheered her up and encouraged her. Uh, but I'm really excited to see see the live stream, and so uh, fill, fills my eyes with tears when I think about it. So, and she's she's as as bubbly as any one of these thick pin kids. So it's it's uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful time. So uh, just just wanted to just go on to say that. Um, so I, I, I get the the great privilege to to preach this morning. Uh, you all have been in a sermon series. Uh, the Gospel of Mark, let me, let me check my time, because Lord knows, uh, I got to be, be aware, I got to be aware. Y'all don't have a hook to pull somebody off the stage, dude. Oh, he said, yep, okay, we got the hook, okay, well, I'm going to try to get off this stage before y'all get the hook. Um, y'all been in a sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark's Gospel is a fascinating book. It's the, uh, the action movie of the Gospels of sorts. It's very fast-paced, one of Mark's uh, most used words is the word immediately, or depending on your translation, straight away, uh, that there's always something happening, next scene, next scene, next scene, and he covers a lot in a short amount of time, um, and uh, he's, he's really good at keeping attention to maybe the newer Bible reader, and so really glad to kind of enter into uh, Mark's account here. Uh, what I love about the text that we're going to be looking at this morning is that there's, there's moments in the gospel uh, where Mark... Uh, for, for some reason or another, kind of downshifts and slows down. Uh, most of the stories, on average, take you know, five to ten verses to get through the story. Uh, there's only a handful of stories, uh, the, the 
crucifixion account not included, where Mark slows down and takes 15 to 20 verses to give a story, to give an account. Uh, There's something that Mark is trying to get the reader to really dig into, to kind of steep into. And our story this morning is one of those accounts um, where Jesus is interacting with a man who has a son that is demon-possessed. He's going through hard times and trials. And there's something in this story that I think is worth us slowing down to steep in to get a better understanding of how the Lord often works in the lives of people who doubt. Now, I don't know uh, any of y'all except the Turners and the Thigpens, but I'm going to guess that there are several of you in here that have experienced or are experiencing doubt in your faith. Um, I want to talk a little bit about that. In particular, uh, I want to talk about how to have faith when the church fails. That's what I want to talk about this morning. Again, I I don't know, uh, but but I imagine y'all have taken notice uh, that there is increasing suspicion about the church. that there is an all-time low in terms of morale when thinking about the church. So, so many research studies are proving this. Gallup is saying since 2020, this is the first time uh, that people are, there are more people not in church than there are in church for the first time in America's history. There's another uh, research article that came out. It was asking Christians about their thoughts about various professions um, and only 35% of them believe that pastors had integrity and were honest. A lot of people are doubting the church. Most churches in the pandemic were cut to by at least a third. And most churches are struggling to see kind of pre-pandemic church life. Pastors are discouraged. They're worn out. They're They're sad. They're sad because there's these stacked expectations on them. I got to be a good preacher, got to be a good counselor, got to be a good commentator, got to be a good social media professional, got to be a good husband, got to be a good father, got to be a good organizer, got to be a good leader. The list goes on and on to the point where about 40% of pastors have heavily considered leaving the ministry altogether. Y'all need to pray for Pastor Ben. Y'all need to love on this man, bless him, encourage him. He is one fallen man that's trying to rely on the Holy Spirit. And even so, he is no more in need of the grace of God than anybody in this room. Okay, I like that this is a church that says amen every now and then. That's what I need. I need need some amens. Uh, Don't leave me in here. I heard y'all was a cross-cultural church. That means you got to have some amens when somebody's preaching to you. Uh, That's one-on-one. Right? That's, that's just one-on-one. Cross-cultural, boom, amens. That's, that's how that works. That's how we do that. Right? Right? Um, it's, it's, it's hard to be in the church. It just is. And we're in a moment where there seems to be a reckoning, where it seems like there's scandal upon scandal of things happening in, in churches. I imagine even some of you You might have a story or two about how the church has hurt you. And and maybe you're struggling with some doubt of of showing up in this space. Can you trust again? Is it worth risking again to be here? How do we make sense of sinners coming together and expecting to experience a Savior? Because too often we, we treat church... Like it's coming to this, this place and it's a relatively good person talking to relatively good people about how to be relatively better. We, we, we don't talk about enough how this is a place for broken, sinful, hurting people that are not the hero of their own story, but they come to encounter a God that can oversee any and all experiences, that he is unshakable, he is unchangeable, he is unstoppable. That's who he is. And we come to this place and we wonder, am I going to experience that God? 
when, when I sin against my neighbor, my neighbor sins against me, where, where is, is that God? Is he still good? And, and that's what I often see in my slice of ministry in Durham, North Carolina, that in, in, in our city, uh, 70% of residents do not have a religious affiliation. Uh, most people do not go to church, and most people do not care about going to church. And I feel like in this cultural moment, the question that is often prevailing in the doubt, in the questioning, is not so much, is Christianity true? That, that question is there. That question is there. And we, we have to be able to talk about the truth of Christianity, the truth of our God. But the question that I feel is most salient in this moment is this, is Christianity good? Is Christianity good? I mean, I mean, what good is it? When I see all this political strife, what, what good is it? When there's all this, this gossip and, and this slander, what good is it? When, I, when I'm walking out of the church and I'm feeling just as exhausted as when I'm in, my, in the world, what, what good is it? Because I don't need this if there's no good to it. Sure, Jesus can be Lord, but does that have anything to do with my life? With my situation, with my family, is it good? And what I see more and more in this cultural moment is people are saying no. You, you, you can keep your least strobel, you can keep your apologetics, I don't care about that. It, that's fine. It's just not good. And all that being said, even so, the Lord does not have a plan B about bringing the glory of his name into this world. He actually hasn't changed his mind at all about the church. He is ferociously passionate about his church. With all its sins, with all its brokenness, he said, that, that's my people. That, that's my bride. That, that's my body. He loves the church. And a lot of people in this culture moment, they're, they're saying things like, you know, I'll take Jesus. I don't want his people, though. And I resonate with that. Ministry would be easy if it wasn't for the people. I feel you. I feel you on that. Ministry would be so good if I had to look at nobody. But that's that sentiment over and over again. I'll take Jesus, but don't make me go to his church. And the punchline of that is that there is no... Jesus that would recognize that kind of request, right? Y'all don't know me, but but I'm married. Uh, My wife is Katrina. Uh, We have two kids. I like my wife, okay? Actually, I don't just love her. I like her. She's fine in all mine, right? Love my wife. It's always sad when I leave, Um, but it's great when I come home. Anyway, so I, 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 I'm focused. I'm focused. Sorry, Lacey. I'm, I'm focused. Um, if you were to come to my house, or if I were to give you an invitation to come to my house, and you, you say, I, you know what, Evan, I'd love to hang out with you. I just don't. I can't stand your wife. I don't want to look at Katrina. She stinks. I don't like her. So we can be friends. Please hang out with me. You think we're going to hang out? You think we're going to be friends? I like my wife. But we do the same thing with Jesus and his church. Jesus, I love you. I'll do whatever devotional you want me to do. I'll even read your Bible. I will pray in my prayer closet. I'll do anything at home. Don't make me come to church. I don't like them. They stink. They get on my nerves. There is no Jesus that recognizes that kind of request. He is the head of this body. He is the bridegroom of the bride. He loves the church. So how then do we make sense of these experiences? He loves this world. He loves his people. And also there are people that are hurting when the church fails. What does it look like to have faith when the church fails? That's what I want to talk about a little bit this morning. And so we're in Mark chapter 9. And we'll be starting in verse 14, and we'll be going to verse 29. 
uh, because, like I said before, this is a passage that's a little, little longer than usual for Mark. Uh, we're actually not going to read the whole thing on the front end, but we're going to take it piece by piece and just kind of walk through this story. Uh, and for, for some of you, this is an opportunity for me to introduce you to someone that has taken the risk of having faith in God even when the church fails. And also, we get to see an opportunity where God's people are being challenged to exercise better faith as well, because we need faith. If we're actually going to see fruitfulness in ministry, if we're going to see fruitfulness in our lives, we actually need faith. And everyone in this story, what we will see is that everyone in here is going through a faith struggle. And and I'm excited to read this because I, I imagine they're not alone. I imagine someone in here is going through a faith struggle. And if you're not, as the old folks say in church, just keep living. Just keep living. You're going to know something about that. Before we dive in, let me say a word of prayer for us. Lord God, thank you for this moment where we can come to your word and experience your truth and your grace. Lord, thank you that when we open your word, you open your mouth and you speak. Speak to us. Thank you, Lord. So Lord, I ask that in this moment, that as I speak to the ear, you would speak to the heart and transform lives. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. His name was Mark Smith. Mark leads this dance ensemble in the UK. He was being interviewed uh, about his ensemble, and he was sharing about these various genres that they danced to. They do hip-hop and liturgical and so on and so forth. But what was most interesting about this story was that Mark was, was talking about this ensemble and how they actually put their performance together. And it was interesting because he and the rest of the members of the ensemble were deaf. Not, not a single person in the troupe, not a single person in the ensemble can hear, and yet they have these performances, these sold-out performances of these moments where they dance together on beat and together in this choreography. And so the question came up, which question might be coming up in your mind, how is it that you are deaf, but you can still dance to this music? He said, what they do is they always dance barefoot, and they they feel the vibrations of the music coming from the piano or the speaker, and they dance to the vibrations through their feet. And and if there's ever a time when they feel like they're getting offbeat, they'll, they'll run over to the piano Run over to the speaker, and they'll, they'll hug the piano, hug the speaker, and hear the beat, I mean, feel the beat, and they'll, they'll get the vibration down into their body, and they'll go back to the dance floor, and they'll do the dance moves and, and feel the vibrations in the floor, and they'll keep going. If they ever feel like they're getting off beat again, they'll, they'll run back to the piano and hug the piano and make sure they have the vibrations and the beat down in their body, and then they will continue again in choreography with each other. And for these people, that people would say that they have this handicap, they have learned how to stay close to the music and perform well. The struggle with God's church is that too often we're we're, we're doing our ministries, we're doing our activities, we're doing our programs, and and we think we're we're dancing to the beat of the gospel, and uh, we forget that not often enough do we go back to, to, to the gospel and, and really make sure we have the music of the gospel in our bodies, in our souls, so that we can actually stay on beat with the gospel and stay on beat with what God is doing in the world. That's the struggle for us. And the invitation is how do we get back in step with this music? In Mark chapter 9, Jesus does this incredible expression of his nature. The transfiguration is what it's called. 
that he is intensely white before Peter, John, and James. They go up to a mountain, and Jesus actually shows his true nature to these men. It's an awesome experience. That's how the chapter begins. But down at the bottom of the mountain, there was some strife and struggle happening. The disciples were left to interact with a man It's dealing with an issue. Let's read a little bit about what's going on with this man. Verse 14 in Mark chapter 9. It says, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Let's stop right there. So we're seeing the the setup of what's going on. This man came to the disciples. He has a son that's demon-possessed. He asked them to cast out the demon. The disciples tried. It did not work. I'm sure it was very surprising to them. If you go back to chapter 6, you would see that Jesus gave them authority to cast out demons, and the text says that they cast out many. Uh They they have the the experience. They, They have the ability. They've seen it with their own eyes. And they try again. But this time, it does not work. And we don't know what unfolded after that, but what we do know is that from the failed attempt to this moment in the story, an argument started. Jesus comes down from the mountain and he asks, what are y'all arguing about? Jesus does not ask questions that he does not already know the answer to. What are you arguing about with them? Why does Jesus ask that question? The scribes who have been in opposition to Jesus and the disciples all along, they're there. They've been trolling the disciples and Jesus all this time. And it's a very unusual moment in their ministry because the disciples are separated from Jesus when they've been with him almost 24-7 for the last two and a half years. And they failed. Their failure is not actually unique. That's another thing I love about Mark's gospel. You see chapter after chapter of the disciples, they just don't get it. They they, they keep falling short. They keep asking questions they should already know the answer to. They they keep failing. The sufficiency is in Christ, not in them. That's what Mark is trying to point out. And that's okay when you are dependent on Christ. But in this moment, Jesus is not around. They try to do the miracle, and it fails. And they start arguing. Not with the man. The scribes are arguing with the disciples. So so, so this, this man brings the boy, writhing, struggling, demon possessed, and the church would rather argue about him than help him. God's people would rather fight about how's the best way to help this family. And they're taking his problem and making it their platform. And it unfolds because they're more focused on the problem than they are the actual person. That feels very familiar to me. When I look at some of these comment sections on these posts, when I read some of these blogs, When I hear some of the conversations in between services, people seem to have so much time to start an argument. But what are you doing about the problem? Jesus says people are dying. This boy's life is in danger. What are you arguing about? I spent some years in a nonprofit and um, what I love about nonprofit workers is that, is that they, they are laser-focused on getting, getting the thing done. Uh, and they're real passionate about their thing. 
They're convinced that if everybody saw the world the way they saw the world, the world would be a better place, so we got to deal with that. What I love most is that they were trying to get to the problem. Not just arguing with people. When you're focusing on your ministry, don't focus on the arguments. Focus on the people. This man, he comes, and the boy seizes. The disciples were, were not able. Couldn't cast it out. Uh, but if, if I had time, I'd talk about the reality of demons, but we ain't got time. Uh, let me just say that the greatest trick that the devil ever did was convince the world that he does not exist. That's his greatest trick. The devil is real. Um, let's keep reading. Verse 19. And Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Verse 22, and it, ca- and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Let's stop right there. Jesus says a couple things. He, he hears the report of the father. He says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? There's, there's a, a holy exasperation that's happening. Something like, oh, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? And what's interesting about that, he's not really focused on the father. He just met the father. He's not really focused on the scribes. He knows the scribes are against him. He's focused on the church. He's focused on his disciples. Not exclusively, but primarily. And what's interesting is that this is chapter 9. They've been walking with Jesus at this point for over two years. Some scholars say it's about 40 days until we get to Passion Week where Jesus dies on the cross. It's been a well-worn path of Jesus' ministry. It's chapter 9. It says, oh, faithless generation, how long? He's aware of all the things that he has done in and through their lives. Chapter 1, he calls out a demon. Chapter 2, he heals a paralytic. Chapter 3, he heals a a man with a withered hand. Chapter 4, he calms a storm. Chapter 5, he calls out another demon. He heals a a woman with the issue of blood. He raises Jairus' daughter. Chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000. Chapter 7, he heals the Syrophoenician woman's daughter and does the the 4,000 feeding again. And then we get to chapter 9. And Jesus says, how long? When will you have faith after all that I've done? And we don't even need to call the role of this gospel. You can look at your own life. Look at your life and see what God has done for you. That he, he picked you up and turned you around and placed your feet on solid ground. He, he, he woke you up this morning. He started you on your way. He put food in your belly and clothes on your back. He got you here, safety, where somebody didn't even get to see this day. He's been with you in the doctor visit. He's been with you in your marriage. He's been with you in all these things. Where is your faith? Oh, faithless yeah. generation. Does anybody know something about if it had not been? Yeah. For the Lord on our side, we would lost our minds a long time ago, but he's been with us the whole step of the way. Oh, faithless generation, how long? How long? What more do I need to do? That's the question that we asked, isn't it? Jesus, give me another thing. Just pay this bill. Give me this car. Give me this job. And we forget that there's a whole resume of decades of God's faithfulness, and we still have the nerve to not have faith in him. You don't need another thing. You need him. How long do I need to bear with you? And he doesn't shame. He doesn't throw away. He stays focused on the person. Bring him to me. Yes. Bring him to me. Don't bring him to the argument. Bring him to me. Yes. Don't bring him to the foolishness. Bring him to me. And the demon starts acting up. 
convulsing the boy. He's foaming at the mouth, rolling around. In Matthew's account, he's screaming and writhing in pain. Can you imagine him in your mind's eye that the father has brought this son and the demon is trying to destroy him? He's deaf and mute. They can't even communicate. And he's writhing, foaming, battered up in the presence of Jesus. That his problem got worse. And he brought him to God. And then Jesus asked, verse 21, how long has this been happening to him? I hope I'm safe here. I, if I got that question, I'd say, who cares? <laughs> Why do you need to know how long it's been happening? It's happening now. Fix the problem now. But Jesus does not just rush in. He asks the question, how long has this been happening? Jesus cares about the person, not just the problem. He says, I, I actually want to invite your story. I want to hear every aspect of the story, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I want it all. Yes. Give me the story. Yes. I don't just see you as your problem. I don't just see you in your poverty. I don't just see you in your strife. I don't just see you in your addiction. I want to see you. Yes. I want to see your story. How long has this been happening? Father says, from childhood, years Upon years, this demon has been throwing this boy into fires and water. They didn't have stoves and, and ovens. They, they cooked over open flames. And can you imagine this father walking with this boy? They're trying to just go to the marketplace, and this demon pushes the boy into the flames. They, they didn't have faucets. They, they have wells, and they're trying to gather their water. Can you imagine? They're trying to get some water for their lives, and the demon trying to push him into the water to try to drown him. And then on top of that, he's convulsing, writhing in pain, foaming at the mouth, grinding his teeth, screaming in agony for years. This is from childhood. The conversation continues. But if you can do anything, verse 22, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us. And help us. Help us. If you can do anything. Now, we who are blessed, we, we might come to that and say, what's wrong with you? What do you mean, if you can do anything? My God owns a thousand cattle on a hill. He's a good God. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. We're we not at that church. We're not at that church. But, um, but, 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 but pause on that. If you can do anything, can, can I trust God when his church has failed? I mean, the church has already failed me. God, can you do anything? I mean, he just said earlier, I, I brought my son to you. That's what he said. Jesus was on the mountain. What do you mean he brought him to you? There's an association there. When I bring him to your disciples, I'm bringing him to you. I'm expecting for you to work. And they failed. Can you do anything about this? I've been struggling for years trying to make sense of this life. He's not entitled. He's looking for mercy. He's looking for some compassion. I got to keep moving. I'm running out of time. Uh, verse 23, Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And if you're a person that highlights in your Bible, I would highlight this next verse here. Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe that's a theme statement for the entire gospel. I believe that's a theme statement for the entire, entirety of our faith. I believe. But I'm able to name there's places that I do not believe. My belief is, my belief is not complete. My belief is not perfect. I do not come to you like I should. I don't have the hope that I should, but I'm coming. I'm showing up. 
I'm here in my sorrow, in my despair, in my exhaustion. I'm here. Help my unbelief. That should be a creed of the Christian faith. How much room would we make for doubt if we just understood that one verse? Yes, I believe, but I have so much doubt. And Jesus did not try to slap a scripture on him. Jesus did not try to rush in and fix it. But he honored that honesty. He keeps moving. Where in your life can you say, I believe? Help my unbelief. Is it your finances? I believe. Help my unbelief. Is it your health? I I believe. Help my unbelief. Where in you do you struggle to believe that God can work in your life? Let's keep moving. Verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he uh, rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Stop there. This moment is the climax in the story. Jesus rebukes the demon, does one last Hail Mary to try to destroy this boy, and comes out. And the exodus is so powerful that it looks like the boy is dead. That's the perception of the crowd. And Jesus, he intentionally, in the text, it says, when he saw that the crowd was gathering, when he saw that there were eyes on this, when he he saw that there were people that were coming, that that just saw that the disciples failed, when when people were gathering and and coming and thinking, what's going to happen this time? Can God really work? Is God actually going to do something in his life? The curiosity was gathering people, and Jesus rebukes the demon, and he said, free. But people thought he failed again. Pulls him up and gives him back to his father whole. Now, now, here is where uh, Christians who actually abide by the Bible and prosperity theologians differ. Because I, I want to say, you know, what, what demon you got in your life? Jesus about to lay hands on that spirit, cast that spirit out, and you'll never see any issues again. Your finances, the demon is rebuked. Your health, the demon is rebuked. Your marriage, the demon is rebuked. That sound good, don't it? Wouldn't that be nice if we had that sermon? That, that any place of strife and struggle, Jesus would just immediately, boom, everything is great. That certainly can happen, amen? I know somebody got a testimony of God working in your life that in the midnight hour when you didn't think anything was going to happen in your life, Jesus showed up and did something amazing. Amen, somebody. I need somebody testifying right there. I need some testimonies right there. Hands. I see you. I see you. I appreciate it. God does work in our lives and he does miraculous things. Everything he does is amazing. But be careful. When you try to put on the text a normative expectation, he's not prescribing a way to handle life. And the problem with prosperity theology is that it puts faith in faith instead of faith in God. If I put faith in faith, if I just keep believing about getting this car, if I keep believing about getting this job, then until I get it, I just need to have more faith. And maybe Jesus doesn't want to give you the job. Maybe Jesus doesn't want to give you that opportunity. Some of y'all got a testimony right there. Look back over your life and say, whoo, I'm glad he didn't give me that. I was so sure I wanted that. I was so sure I wanted that girlfriend or that boyfriend. Thanks be to God that he doesn't listen to me when I call out about some of these things. But when you put your faith in God, you understand that all things are possible. Not all things are definite. When you have faith in God, all things are possible, but not all things are definite. And that's why we in America, we don't shout about that. We don't get excited about the possibility of God because we're exceptional. We're triumphant. We're born and bred thinking that all possibilities that we just choose our oyster and just pick whatever we want. 
But for people in this society, that where you were born is where you were working, wherever your station was, there was no uh, upward mobility, for Jesus to come and say, all things are possible for you. Your story is not written. There is more that could happen in your life. God can actually move beyond what you expect in your life at any time. All things are possible. And, and what I love about this story, Luke's gospel, the, the parallel, it says, when the, when the miracle happened, they all were astonished at the majesty of God. Yeah. They, they weren't astonished at the miracle. They were astonished at the majesty of God. The reason why Jesus does any miracle is that he wants some glory for that miracle. He wants people to see that I supersede any kind of experience. When Jesus cast out demons, there were still demons that needed to be cast out. When Jesus raised people from the dead, those same people died some time ago. Lazarus is not walking around here anymore. He's dead. But he still did the miracle. Why? Because he's not focused on the miracle. He's focused on his majesty and his glory, and he wants people to have faith in God. Not faith in faith. I got to end here. When he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this cannot happen. This cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Uh, Ian Bounds says that prayer is fundamentally the soul's expression of dependence on the Lord. The danger of ministry is that you can learn how to do it. The danger of ministry is that you can learn how to do it. You can, you can come and do the rituals. You can come and do the routines. You can come and do the motions, and God is not anywhere in it. Yeah. The problem with the disciples is that they had experience, and they thought that their experience was enough to do this miracle, and it wasn't. They always needed to be with God. They always needed to be dependent on God because that's where the authority originates. It's not a formula, but it's a posture towards God in the world. And so how do we have faith when the church fails? We have faith when the church fails because the power is not in the church. The power is in God. And when we understand that power is in God and not in the church, we can actually have our hope where it should be. That... that it's not the church that's unshakable, unchangeable, unstoppable. It's, it's God. It's God. And so when we leave, we need to leave in the understanding of who God is. Yesterday, I was at the Fall Festival for, for Parker Street Ministries. It was, it was amazing. Uh, it was such a, a good experience. Uh, kids everywhere, families hanging out. And I got to be with the Thigpins. Um, and the Thigpin kids are hilarious. Um, I didn't tell them I was going to put them in my sermon ahead of time, but surprise, you're in my sermon. Um, when we were about to end our time at the fall festival, uh, my, my nieces, I call them my nieces, um, they, they were doing a craft uh, at a table uh, kind of down the way. Um, and, and Lacey told Michael, go tell your sisters it's time to go. And he ran off. A couple minutes later, came back, and he said, they're not coming. And, and, and their dad, Mike, said, did you tell them that they need to come on? He said, yes. Yeah. like, what did you tell them? He said, I told them to hurry up. <laughs> he said, no, you're, did you tell them that, that mom said it's time to go? And he smiled because he knew he didn't do that. And, and, and his dad sent him off to say, go tell them that mom said it's time to go, and you need to use that as your authority. He said that. Yes, he did. Because, <laughs> see, when, when, when little Mike came in his own power and his own authority and said, you got to come on, you got to hurry up, they didn't move. But when he said, I'm coming in the authority of my parents, when I, I'm coming in the authority of my mother and my father, and when I speak, I'm speaking on behalf of them because they have the authority, yeah. not me. Uh -huh. So get up. Uh. And that's what the invitation is. Yeah. That when we have the authority, it's not an authority in us. Yeah. Jesus says, all power and authority is in me. 
And that was secure, not because of circumstance, but because on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross and the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old rugged cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. In other words, on one Friday night, they, he walked up Calvary's mountain. Now, this is where the cross-cultural church starts saying amen right here. <laughs> they, 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 they hung him high and they stretched him wide. They put nails in his hands and nails in his feet. Amen, somebody. They put a spear in his side. The song says the blood came streaming down. He hung his head and he died. But did he lose? Was the authority taken from him? Of course, that is not the case. Because all night Friday, he was down in the grave. All day Saturday, he was down in the grave. But this is where you get your one-on-one and cross-cultural ministry that you hear early Sunday morning. I said early Sunday morning. That's your amen cue right there. Early Sunday morning, he got up with all power and authority in his hands. And he said, death could not hold me. That the victory is in my hands. Not in the hands of anything else. Don't do that to me. Don't do that to me. Don't do it to me. I got to go. I'm over time already. Don't do it to me. Don't do it to me. And our confidence is not in what we can do. Our confidence is not in our circumstances. We remain confident in this, that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So don't give up on God. Don't give up on God because he won't give up on you. In your lowest moments, don't give up on God because you can remain confident that the goodness of the Lord will remain in this world and it will overpower any darkness, death, and the grave. Hallelujah. Thanks be to God. Give him praise. I said give him praise if you believe it. If you believe it, give him praise.